Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. Back in 2004, a full 12 years ago, my guest Thomas Frank published a book entitled What's the Matter with Kansas? In it, among other things, he looked at how a segment of the population was consistently voting against their own economic self-interest, that so-called culture war issues played to emotions that overtook their wallets. Twelve years later, that trend reached its apogee with the election of Donald Trump. Therefore, it's important to remember that Trump didn't create the economic, class, and cultural divisions in America today. He merely successfully exploited them. Those trends fed by changes in the very nature of work, technology, communications, global economics, have resulted in a society that is in many ways not recognizable from the America of yore. So the question is, given that we, the American people, played a role in creating this, do we have the power or the skills to put Humpty Dumpty back together again? We're going to talk about this with Thomas Frank. Like the Simon and Garfunkel song, Thomas Frank has spent years looking for America. He's the author of Listen Liberal, Pity the Billionaire, The Wrecking Crew, and of course, What's the Matter with Kansas. He's a former columnist for the Wall Street Journal and Harper's and was the founding editor of The Baffler. He writes regularly for The Guardian, and it is my pleasure to welcome Thomas Frank back to this program to talk about his newest work, Rendezvous with Oblivion, Reports from a Sinking Society. Thomas, thanks so much for joining us. Hey, Jeff. That was, a, that was a very kind introduction. I really appreciate that. Well, it's a delight. I hope I can live up to it. <laughs> it's a delight to have you back. When we look at the state, the unrecognizable state of America today, is it really any worse than, for example, what we were going through 50 years ago at the height of the Vietnam era? Uh, Look, there's a there is a visceral dislike of Donald Trump because he's such a, a vulgar ignoramus, and he's doing a lot of of damage to um, you know to the government in Washington and to our relationship with our various allies. But he hasn't got. I mean, the Vietnam War. Remember something, Jeff? There was how many Americans were in that? Three hundred thousand. I mean, we're talking about a, a very large conflict. Uh, he hasn't done anything like that yet, and the economy is so far. Uh, doing really well. Um, this is a this is one of the weird little um, counterpoints to you know the era of of of, of Trump's um, idiocy is that is that uh, you know unemployment is really down and you know the economy seems to be roaring right now. Now of course it was in the 1960s too, but that all came to a crashing end very soon afterwards. But I don't think we're so I you you know um uh, uh, uh Seymour Hirsch, you know the the great sure. investigative reporter has just put out a memoir and I was watching an interview with him. This is where one one author watching an interview with another author <laughs> and someone asked him to compare Trump's falsehoods with Lyndon Johnson's. And he said, look, there's no comparison. Lyndon Johnson was basically lying us into a, a, a catastrophic war, and Trump hasn't done that yet. His lies are um, this kind of vainglory, you know? This, he, he's a, but I don't want to minimize the guy's uh, his folly. It's very dangerous what he's doing, and it's very stupid. Um, and I don't think... Well, I don't know if it'll end well. I mean, who the hell knows? I just like I, it pisses me off that I have to sit, that I have to to take this ride. You know, <laughs> I have to sit in this roller coaster seat. And and that's one of the interesting things about it is that we don't know how it's going to end because there is no 
philosophy behind it. There is no real ideology behind it other than stupidity in so many respects. So we, can, <laughs> so we can't say, as we might say with another elected, another politician, you know, this philosophy will lead us down this road. And that's what history tells us. And that's where we can. There's no clear path to where, as you say, this ride is going. Yeah, it, it, he's just blundering along. I was reading about what he, you know, all the ways that he antagonized uh, the NATO allies uh, the other day. And that's really bad and that's really stupid, but thank goodness, you know, the, the Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. <laughs> you know? So the main reason that NATO was there, you know, is it's no longer such an emergency. I mean, to do something like that at the height of the Cold War would have been incredibly stupid. Um, but you know he 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 can say something like that and get away with it. Also, th- you know they can take it. So I'm not I'm not all that worried about it. But right. uh, it, it is just it, it is incredibly stupid. His trade wars incredibly stupid. And by the way, I'm one of the guys that um, one of the stories in Rendezvous with Oblivion uh, that I wrote in the spring of 2016. It's one of the stories leading up to the election where I said you know you better look out for this guy. He's got something on the ball. And that thing that he had on the ball was. But when he talked about trade agreements and the crowds would roar when he would denounce NAFTA and stuff. And I, and he, I think he was right to do that. Uh, the, the problem is he has no idea what is wrong with NAFTA. Right. <laughs> he thinks it really was a free trade agreement, and so therefore we need tariffs to fix it. And it's like, you, buddy, you have misunderstood the whole thing. It's, it's amazing. He based his presidential campaign on denouncing these treaties and these trade agreements, and, and now it turns out he doesn't know what he was talking about. Why is it, in your view, that no one, and and the whole panoply of Democrats and even some Republicans along the way, have been so unsuccessful in countering him? Well, let's talk about the Democrats for the moment, because that's... um that's where that's what what I've been writing about for for the last couple of years. Why have they been? You know, as you, as you mentioned at the start of the show, Jeff, I, I've been writing about right wing populism for a really long time, and I think I can I think I understand it, and I think I understand what motivates Trump's followers. You know, it's this this sort of he takes uh, class based grievances against the elite, against bosses, against whatever, you know, people looking at their way of life crumble. You know, it's a terrible thing and you feel for them. And he redirects those grievances in a, in a, in a political direction, in, a, in the wrong direction. Okay, we know that. The question is why have the Democrats been unable to stop this thing? And not just to stop him, but to stop George Bush before him, to stop Ronald Reagan before him, to stop uh, Richard, well, they did stop Richard Nixon eventually. But they are, um, they don't seem to get this. Uh, You know, even though I've written about it many times, other people have written about it for years, it's a known phenomenon, but they don't seem to understand and they don't seem to be able to do what is obviously necessary to stop it. Can I give you an example of what I mean? Please. So when I wrote What's the Matter with Kansas, uh, for a while the Democrats, you know, uh, Democrats were really interested in that book and, uh, and, you know, they wanted me to tell them about the message and all that, and I was happy to do that. And then about two years later, they all decided that, uh, in fact, there was no problem, that white working class people were not leaving the Democratic Party, and specifically in the northern states. And this became... Uh, the sort of accepted uh, conventional wisdom. Like uh, Paul Krugman wrote about it three or four times in his column in the New York Times, using my name, by the way, mm-hmm. as the guy who was wrong 
about uh, about right wing populism. And uh, and then okay, so then and they were saying that by the way right up until Trump got elected, they didn't have anything to worry about. And then after Trump wins, now they, you know, I live in Washington, and I, and I, and so I, I'm sort of immersed in the conventional wisdom of the Democrats. Now their line is, well, there's nothing we can do. You know, this is this is irreversible. These people are lost to us forever. Uh, there's no way we can win these people back, and we shouldn't even try. So they've gone from saying it isn't happening to saying there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. And it, it boggles the mind, you know, because they never stopped at the halfway point to say this is happening and let's do something to prevent it, you know. They never, they never said that. They just skipped over that. And you ask yourself why. What do these two positions that they've adopted have in common? They both require the Democrats to do nothing differently. Nothing differently. They don't have to change what they stand for. They don't have to change who they associate with. Uh, they, you know, they can still hang around with the guys from Wall Street. They can still be the party of Silicon Valley. They can still be, you know, friends with big pharma and that sort of thing. They, there's no problem at all. They just have to find a better, you know, candidate next time. Maybe they'll run a celebrity next time. They'll run somebody who can get out the base uh, better, you know, something like that. But they, under no circumstances, will they acknowledge any kind of finding or criticism or um, social science or anything that requires them to do something differently. Part of it, though, is that in many ways it, it's difficult for them to understand and maybe even irreconcilable for the professional managerial class that is really the Democratic Party to understand this point. Yeah, oh yeah. That is, it, it, it's it, yes, and I'm sorry. You, I, that's that's what I, that's how I should have answered the question. <laughs> you put it very succinctly there. That is exactly right. I mean, the Democrats are a class party, and that class is the sort of white collar affluent, you know, people with advanced degrees. That's that's really who the Democratic Party represents, uh, and those people. You know, big shocker here. They really are not uh, interested in the grievances of working class people. They really don't care about those grievances. They don't, uh, you know, they might they might feel bad uh, that America, you know, that middle class America is crumbling out in the you know the Midwest or something. But they aren't gonna. They don't. They don't really care about it. Uh, you know, it doesn't touch them personally. And they, you know, they like their lives. They like uh, being uh, white-collar, affluent people with advanced degrees. Uh, you know, they like that. They like that that they're doing very, very, very well in this economy, and they did very, very well. Uh, they've been doing well for a long time. Uh, you know, and they're getting, they're doing extremely well, and they don't want that to change. It's, it's uh, not just that they they can't understand working-class people. They don't want to. That would be costly. It would be, you know, it would go against everything that, that, has, that has worked so well for them. What I'm saying is that these are winners in inequality. It's not just the Republicans. It's not just the Koch brothers and, you know, um, uh, big businessmen who support the Republican Party. It's the leadership of the – it's the, the, the people who support the Democratic Party also have done very well uh, from inequality. And they're not interested in, uh, in, in calling that into question. And how do you reconcile that with what we're seeing some of today, which is a kind of, of radicalization and mobilization of liberalism, the likes of which we haven't seen in a long time? 
Well, that's a that's a very uh, a healthy and a happy sign. And you know, I went to the uh, the women's march the day after Trump's. Uh, by the way, I went to Trump's inauguration too. I went to that, and then I went to the women's march the next day, uh, which had, geez, like a, a, an enormous, you know, such a vast number of people. It felt claustrophobic down on the the mall in uh, downtown Washington. Uh, I am very excited about that, uh, about the fact that, that um, there are so many people uh, out in the streets, so many people angry. There is a wave of you know, liberal passion that is sweeping over the country. Now, whether that can be translated into you know, votes and uh, you know, used to take over one of the houses of Congress, which is really what has to happen this fall uh, for things to go forward. Uh, that I don't know. I mean, the Democratic Party sees the same thing that you and I do. They see this wave of, uh, of anger and frustration and people in the street. And, uh, and I hate to say this, but they, they act very complacent about it. They're like, good, so, so we're going to win. Awesome. So we don't have to do anything. You know? mm-hmm. it's, that, that wave is going to buoy us up because they have this monopoly position right now as the, uh, you know, the, the people who are going to protect us from Trump and the Republicans. They don't have to do anything. It, it, there's a, there is a complacency with these guys that is just absolutely frustrating. And you look at the kind of, of uh, people that the Democratic hierarchy has chosen as their, you know, the hierarchy chooses its candidates, not the other way around, you know. And the people that they've chosen to run in these various districts are just... It, it, they don't. They don't make you enthusiastic. You know. Let me put it that way. They don't make you optimistic about the future. I mean, I guess the the overriding question is: Can the party of Hillary Clinton be merged with the party of Alexandria Ocasio Cortez or Bernie Sanders? Right. You know. The, uh, the, look, there's an incredible resistance to that. Just look at the last um, uh, at the last election. You know, and the, where there's this there's this extreme hostility among. Uh, well, between the Hillary and the Bernie camps to this day, which I just think is the strangest thing in the world, you know, and uh, the the Hillary people blame uh, Sanders for costing her the election, which I think is a stretch. And they, uh, you know, they refuse to put Sanders on the ballot, by the way, which probably would have changed the results had they made him the VP candidate. And they are right now uh, in Washington dreaming up ways to keep him from, from running again, which is really strange because, I mean, look at this guy. He's very popular. Uh, you know, even if you don't want him as an individual representing you, you're going to have to find a candidate that talks like him and that says a lot of the things that he says. But so far, they're they are uh, dead set. They're determined to not let that happen, uh, which is really weird. You know, the Democratic Party has always had factions in it. Nothing strange about that. And you're, they're going to have to come to some kind of accommodation with the left wing of the party. They just are. Uh, you know, to keep shunning them and to keep refusing to give them anything when when they're, you know, that's clearly where the momentum is. That It just strikes me as strange. I mean, you're supposed to want to win. You know, that's what a political party is about. You want to you take power and hold power and govern. And, and they don't seem to be all that concerned about that. By the way, this is a part of a, a, a larger theory of mine that we could talk about for a really long time unless you tell me to shut up. So I'll, I'll just shut up right now. No, go ahead. Well, t- tell me the, your, your theory on this. So, like I said, political parties exist to, uh, you know, to, to win power, to take power, hold power, to govern, right? The Democratic Party these days doesn't seem to be acting like that. Like that's not, and for a long time, 
I should say. I mean, you look at the complacency. Do you remember during 2016, I, I think we talked then, complacency was the word I used to use to describe uh, Hillary's campaign. It was just, they were absolutely certain that you know they didn't really have to do anything. They didn't have to please anyone. They didn't have to deliver anything to anyone. Uh, they just had to be, and they would, they would do all right. And they are, this is that is kind of describes the Democratic Party generally. There is a um, there is a complacency about these people uh, where y- you start to question whether they're even interested in winning. Uh, I, I kind of kind of don't think they are. The fact that they are right now in Washington talking about how they they uh, they don't want to reach out to Trump voters. They don't want to reach out to people that they lost, you know, who have gone from being voting for Obama to go, voting for Trump. And, you know, in, in politics where you have a two-party system, you know, there's only so many voters out there. You have to go out there and get those people back. That's what you have to do. They're not interested in that. And that just strikes me as profoundly strange. You know, you've got to do something to get those people back. But if you listen to if, – if you listen deeper – and you listen to the political consultants that reflect exactly what you're talking about, one of the things you hear is a focus on turnout and a focus on expanding their voters and who's going to turn out and the election riding on on turnout. And really what it is is an extension of what we were talking about earlier, the professional managerial class, a very managerial approach to campaigns that is devoid of of passion and ideology. Yeah, that that is exactly right. Uh, I mean, and you could, yes, and that that should be like written on the Democratic Party's tombstone, uh, <laughs> devoid of passion and ideology. That is exactly right, and it also that is the perfect description of Hillary Clinton's campaign. By the way, it, you know, uh, you remember Listen Liberal? It came out two years ago. It was. The reason I wrote it was because you look at the Obama administration, which was filled with you know some of the most brilliant academics in America. Uh, you know, he had some of the smartest guys in the country running it, and and yet they managed to you know they didn't they didn't do it right. They didn't play it right. They it, and inequality got worse. Nobody uh, took the bankers to task. You know, they didn't do what they came in what they said they were going to do, and the result is Donald Trump. And so, I was. The theme of that book was the failure of government by experts. You know, how do you, how does that happen? I, I, I was, a, and I, I asked that question because I was a, once a great believer in government by expert, and uh, it, they really screwed it up. But then you look at the Hillary campaign, and it's an even more atrocious story uh, along the same lines, where she had the greatest experts in America running her campaign. Her campaign was run by an algorithm. Did you know this? Right. They, they had, uh, you know. There's these, you know, the books that were written about Hillary's campaign and the journalism that was written about it before she lost was all about the, you know, incredible computer geniuses, you know, like uh, Eric Schmidt from Google was on her side, you know, all of these geniuses running her campaign. They could not possibly fail, and (laughs) fail they did. And it's another example of the exact same thing. But now, this is a philosophy and a way of looking at the world that they cannot divorce themselves from this technocratic way of looking at things. They cannot. And I think you're exactly right that before anything else happens, they really have to take a long, hard look at that ideology. And it is a class-based ideology. It reflects who they are. You know, the people, the uh, white-collar people with advanced degrees, of course they think like this. Of course this is what they do. Of course they put Larry Summers in charge 
you know, of rescuing the economy. And of course, they, you know, they get these guys from Silicon Valley to run their presidential campaign. And it fails, and it fails, and it fails. When will they get the message, Jeff? I do not know. It's interesting. Soon, I hope. It's interesting to look at Trump as the mirror opposite of that. Lack of professionalism, <laughs> lack of expertise, lack of experts. And oh, yeah. it's, just, and it's all about his mouth off. Right. It's he all about the, bluster and passion. Yes. Uh, yes, exactly. He's the opposite of Obama in so many ways. Uh, and that's that's one of them, you know, uh, and that is exactly right. And it's like he chose people uh, to run his administration who are the opposite of, of experts. These are people that, you know, are trying actively trying to wreck the agencies that he's put them in charge of. Yes, it's, it is. A, I mean, we live in an age of incredible ironies. And that's one of the more mm, one of the more uh, fragrant ones. And I, and I guess, really, the question becomes, if nobody learns from any of this, particularly if Democrats don't learn from it, that the only thing that, that turns it one, we see a realignment of the parties, and two, the only thing that changes is if the economy tanks or we're in a war somewhere. Yeah, let's hope those things don't happen. The, the, um, but, you know, you're right about the about, – so I, I have a, the last story in Rendezvous right. with Oblivion. It's about – how Trump gets reelected. It's imagining this scenario. And I know that's very distasteful for, uh, for your listeners to imagine something like that, but you have to think about it if you want to try to confront it. And the economy is running so hot right now that, I mean, if Trump were to just shut up and like disappear from public view, I think he would have a really good chance of getting reelected in two years, you know, if unemployment continues to go down the way the way it has been going. But that doesn't mean that I, I wish for uh, another recession or something like that, which would deliver the White House to the Democrats, uh, but it would be an awful thing. I mean, there's there's another irony in all of this is that is that Trump isn't really responsible for the roaring economy right, right. now. The, the 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 one person who really is is uh, Janet Yellen, if you ask me, who was the Fed chairman under Obama, and who uh, uh, refused to raise interest rates, you know, as the economy heated up, which is the, the sort of the conventional wisdom, and she refused to do that, and now she's gone, and Trump is taking the credit for it. Um, <laughs> But I forgot where we started with this question. Well, let's move on, because one of the other aspects of all of this is the way it's written about, both every day and, and even those that are taking a little longer view, that the, the journalism and the books and most of the writing about it is from the point of view of this professional class, which makes it oh, harder always, to, to always. dig into. Yes, Yes, always. That's always the way. This is a, you know, it's funny because after the last election and after, you know, Listen Liberal came out, uh, I thought that the Democrats would have, would have to do some kind of, um, you know, they'd have to look in the mirror and do some kind of self-evaluation. And they have so far refused. Now, there are some Democratic politicians who have. Uh, the ones who are running for president next time around. But by and large, what you're describing, uh, the sort of pundit class in this country, they have it, it, it sort of come together in an ever tighter little circle around a really limited number of views. And there's this it, striking unanimity 
about their views. If you read the Washington Post op-ed page or you read the New York Times op-ed page, the, the, the range of opinion that is represented is incredibly narrow, and it is getting more narrow as the years go by, which is really interesting to me, more narrow as newspapers across the country die and we're left with – by the way, Jeff, interesting fact here. You know, uh, the the whole – and this is, by the way, this is part of the story in uh, Rendezvous with Oblivion is the professionalization of uh, journalism and then the death of journalism, the sort of deprofessionalization of it, and also in academia and in so many other places, and also the corruption of, the, of, of, these, of these professionals. But journalism is a place where in this country of ours, which has 320 million people in it, we have only two newspapers that matter. Do you ever think about that? In a country of this size, everybody in media takes their lead from either the New York Times or the Washington Post. There's, of course, also the Wall Street Journal, but they aren't. Uh, they don't have the same kind of the same kind of influence. And so, you're talking about essentially an opinion cartel. I mean, it's just eensy beensy tiny little circle of people they all know each other <laughs> you know and this is who uh, gives us the opinions for the world and or for the or for you know for the whole country i should say and the fascinating thing about that is the internet you know was supposed to explode all this uh you know into a million pieces but it, it feels to me sometimes like the opposite thing is happening like uh, the opinions are the, the 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 realm of the permissible is is becoming smaller not not greater and uh more narrow and more uh pro professional class oriented i mean when was the last time you saw a newspaper uh column you know, written from the perspective of working class people. By the way, that used to be common in this country. That's like Mike Royko, you know, was famous Jimmy for that. Br Jimmy Breslin, it, I mean, those were, yeah. Jimmy Breslin, there's another one. Yeah, that is that is completely gone. You know, the, the New York Times and the Washington Post are obviously, you know, these are professional class newspapers. These are newspapers for white-collar people, for very affluent readers, and that's who they're aimed at, and that's who they speak to, and that's who writes for them, and that's, that is who they are, and that is like uh, I've, opinion is more dominated by that group than uh, ever before. Which comes back to, I mean, as, as we move to the end of this, it, it comes back to some of the ideas in What's the Matter with Kansas, which is that this is not as much about political ideology as it is about class at the end of the day. You have figured me out, sir. This is all my, that is the secret ingredient of all my books is that I, I, I take class seriously. Uh, and uh, if you ask me, class is, the, uh, is, is a really, really important ingredient in politics and in how people behave and how people perceive the world. However, that said, it is very difficult for Americans, you know, commentators, politicians, you know, the sort of world of public opinion or of, of, of people who write for the, the, you know, it's very difficult for them to talk about class. Class is a tricky and hard and they think a, a slightly offensive concept. But that is, that is exactly right. And you see, so, you know, that, that basically what the culture wars are about uh, is what I wrote in What's the Matter with Kansas. The culture wars are about taking class grievances and expressing them in some non-economic way. And you can see class messages in every single one of the culture war fights that we've been having. And then you, you get Donald Trump, and it is right out in the open with this guy. I mean, he, at least he had the virtue in 2016 of being very forthright about this stuff. 
and uh, uh, and on and on it rolls. Now I want to. Uh, I know we're we're out of time here, but I want to end with the uh, with this thought. You know, the, the culture wars are exhausting, and they tire me out, and they're so dumb, and I wish they would go away. And they're, going, they're starting up again, you know, Trump fighting about the flag with the NFL, Trump fighting with the liberal media, Trump fighting with this elite and that. It, it's like we're back to 2007, you know? It's like nothing, it, nothing has changed. And I just think about the fantastic opportunity that we as a country had to put all of that behind us in 2008 and 2009. You know, when you're in an economic crisis, the culture wars don't matter anymore. And we had this this gifted, young, smart president, Barack Obama, who everybody thought was going to be the next Franklin Roosevelt and could have, had he acted forcefully, I think, could have given us a situation where the Democratic Party, a sort of reinvigorated, uh, you know, changed Democratic Party, ruled for 60 years like Roosevelt's Democratic Party did. And Obama didn't do that. And now, you know, the economy has recovered, and we are right back to where we started as though nothing happened at all. And it is just so massively frustrating to me. And what's worse, and I think maybe it explains so much of the the partisan divide today, is that when the debate was about issues, when the debate was about ideology, when the debate was about ways of seeing things politically, that you could try and find common ground, that you could try and find compromise. But when the debate is about class, there is no compromise. Yeah, but there... That's right. That's right. That's that's actually that's a that is kind of a striking perception. You're right. They're, they're the, 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 the the sort of professional class Democrats are absolutely unwilling to uh, you know to to acknowledge the legitimacy of some of you know the concerns of Trump voters, which is shocking. But you know, Jeff, there was a time in this country when, uh, of course. We had to compromise. We had strong unions. Uh, you know, you had to take their opinions into account, and you had to give them, you know, something. <laughs> you, know, you couldn't just go along ignoring the wishes of working class people. But nowadays, it, we feel like we can. We feel like they have no standing, you know, to demand anything. Um, and and that is a. I mean, that is a. Uh, that is a uh, a symptom of these upside down, these crazy political times that we're living through. Thomas Frank, his new book is Rendezvous with Oblivion, Reports from a Sinking Society. It's just out from Metropolitan Books. Thomas, always a pleasure. I thank you so much for spending time with us. Oh, the pleasure was all mine. Thank you.